Hey, this is Joel Allen, the host of Biblical Conversations, honest conversation about difficult aspects of the Bible. Biblical Conversations is an invitation to a new way of thinking about Scripture. Typically, we come to Scripture looking for answers or to find wisdom, the Word of the Lord, or to find insight into the human condition. And while those are great questions to ask of Scripture, this podcast is about a new way of thinking about the Bible, a new way of looking at Scripture as an extended series of conversations, biblical conversations, conversations that are often in conflict and just as often finding conflict resolution. The Bible, like Jesus himself, is fully human and fully divine. And here we're going to explore the human side of this equation as a portal to deeper appreciation and deeper insight into the Bible as the very Word of God. The Bible was written by many different people with different ideas and different agendas. The authors of Scripture were people like you and me about the task of understanding this Yahweh who led them up out of Egypt and into the land of promise and who comes to us in the person of Jesus, our Christ. The Bible, as a fully human document, conveys ideas about God that are in conflict with other ideas about God in the Bible. The Bible is a human story about how these ancient people of faith with conflicting notions and competing understandings learned how to resolve conflicts and develop communities built on shalom. And this is why this is so important. We still live in community and we still have conflict, conflict that's getting worse by the day. We still seek shalom. We need to find shalom, God's peace. There's an art to learning to live within the bonds of peace and by divine grace in blessed community. And I believe that the most exalted, at least for me, the most transformative way we can experience the scriptures as, as the very words of God is to grapple with them in all their humanity. I've come to love the Bible even more passionately as God's word because it comes to us in the dust of history, the grind of politics, and the gore of warfare. It conveys a history generated by people of faith on a complex and meandering journey of redemption and grace. The words of these particular people have become for us the very word of God, the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God for this unspeakable gift, a gift that points the way toward reclaiming blessed communities of shalom today and to God's eternal kingdom. Are you up for a new way of engaging in the holy scriptures of our faith? Let's have a biblical conversation. We're going to talk about the book of Psalms for quite some time because the book of Psalms ends up being quite an important repository of the concepts about kingship, the ways people understood kingship. And we've already talked about some of the Psalms as we've been talking about kingship so far. So the notion of kingship in ancient Israel was a developing concept, and the book of Psalms has all kinds of important information there. And it may be surprising to you because you might think, well, you know, when I think about stories about kings in ancient Israel, I don't think of Psalms. I think about, you know, first and second Daniel or, or first and second Kings or first and second Chronicles or first and second Samuel. That's where I might think of to go to for stories about kings. But when you think about it a little further, it does become evident that the book of Psalms is an important book to look at because, first of all, a lot of the Psalms are attributed to King David. And secondly, the book of Psalms is connected to temple worship. It's a, essentially a handbook for the worship of Yahweh in the temple. And so as such, temples were built by kings and they were right next to royal palaces. So Solomon built the first temple and it was right next to the city of David where the palace was. And then, uh, and then King Herod built the second temple. So both of those temples are very much royal structures built for royal worship. And And many of the Psalms have in them uh, royal theology. And so we notice this when we start right at the beginning of the book of Psalms, Psalms chapter 1 and 2. Psalms chapter 1 and 2 are are both introductory psalms to the rest of the book of Psalms. And let me just start by saying that within the book of Psalms, we not only have a repository of ideas about the, the kingship in ancient Israel, we also see kind of an evolving set of ideas that are in, in some um, tension with one another, but then looking for resolution. So there's, there's kind of a revolving set of ideas 
is in the book of Psalms as it relates to their concept of kingship. And we can see the two sides of the coin, the two different aspects of it as we, um, or t- yeah, let me look, think of it as two different sides of the coin or two basic competing ideas. Um, right at the very beginning. Uh, and and in associated with this, there are two basic metaphors that are associated with these two first books. The, the metaphors are pathway and refuge. The first psalm is very much about the pathway. It, it's talking about the pathway that the righteous follow. And it's very much associated with the Torah and development of a life of Torah and a life of studying Torah because that's what leads to, that's the pathway that leads to righteousness. And then the second psalm is very much associated with the king and with the, the one who is anointed and the idea of there being a, the king as being the son of Yahweh, Yahweh's very son. And the because the king takes refuge in Yahweh. The king is also a source of refuge for other people that take refuge in Yahweh. So the very last words are, blessed are they who take refuge in Yahweh, or sorry, but all who take refuge in Yahweh are truly happy. And so both of these psalms have basic metaphors, refuge for two, pathway for one, and both of them have fundamentally different or kind of uh, two different aspects of what the Psalms are all about and and how there's kind of some basic tension between two different understandings in the book of Psalms, and as, especially as it relates to kingship. And so the first Psalm, let me read Psalm chapter one, which again, it has this metaphor of pathway. The truly happy person doesn't follow wicked advice, doesn't stand on the road of sinners, and doesn't sit with the disrespectful. Instead of doing those things, these persons love Yahweh's instruction, and they recite God's instruction day and night. They're like a tree planted by streams of water which bears fruit at just the right time and whose leaf doesn't fade. Whatever they do succeeds. That, that's not true for the wicked, but they are like the dust that the wind blows away. And that's why the wicked will have no standing in the courts of, the just, of justice. Uh, neither will sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Yahweh is intimately acquainted with the way of the righteous. And in Hebrew, that's tzedek tzadikim. Tzedek tzadikim. And I just say it in Hebrew because it's uh, kind of the key metaphor for this passage, the idea of tzedek, that uh, the way of the righteous versus the way of the wicked. So the Lord is intimately acquainted with the tzedek tzadikim, the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked, the tzedek reshaim, is destroyed. So Psalm 1 has these two key words that lay out key ideas around which the whole psalm is structured. And because it's the introduction to the rest of the book of Psalms, we can say that this, uh, these two ideas are being presented to us as two basic ways that we should think about the whole book of Psalms. So again, the two ideas are Torah and Tzedek. Torah, the instruction of God, and Tzedek, the pathway of God. And so the Psalms are saying, think about the whole book of Psalms as like kind of like the law of Moses, as a Torah, as an instruction, and just the way you meditate upon the Torah, and you might meditate upon the Ten Commandments and the other things that are in the the first five books written by Moses, you should think of the book of Psalms as something like that, as an instructional manual, not just a song of praises to God, but an instructional manual instructional manual upon which you, you meditate. And as you do that, you're developing a pathway of righteousness that leads to a happy life. And so the whole book of Psalms is presented almost as a tree of life, as a pathway to the tree of life that will, and it, the tree is described here, right? A tree planted by streams of water. So the tree of life uh, is this beautiful tree, and the book of Psalms is being presented as a pathway of instruction, Torah, to meditate upon, and this gives you a pathway that leads you to the tree of life. And so the whole book of Psalms is being presented as something of a pathway to the tree of life. Psalm chapter 2 also has two key words. One of them is king and the other is refuge. Let's read it together. Why do the nations rant? Why do the peoples rave uselessly? The earth's rulers take their stand. The leaders scheme together against Yahweh and against his anointed one. Come, they say, we will tear off their ropes and throw off their chains. The one who rules in heaven laughs. 
My Lord makes fun of them. But then God speaks to them angrily. Then he terrifies them with his fury. I thereby thereby appoint my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will announce the Lord's, I'm sorry, I will announce Yahweh's decision. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Just ask me and I will make the nations your possession. The far corners of the earth will be your property. You will smash them with a rod, with an iron rod. You will scatter them like a pottery jar. So kings, wise up. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh reverently. Trembling, kiss his feet. Or else he will become angry and your way will be destroyed because his anger ignites in an instant. But all who take refuge in Yahweh are truly happy. I think to really get a sense for this particular psalm, you have to picture it in the temple. Imagine this massive temple complex with thousands of people there, and maybe they've gathered together for a ceremony whereby they're going to celebrate the coronation of the king. Maybe it's on a yearly basis, and they're celebrating the king's rule, and there's a prophet, a great temple prophet, or someone speaking, maybe a priest speaking for God. So this psalm was intended to be recited from the temple on some major holiday. So imagine, as I said, the temple is packed with people and the king is there and the priest is there and he's standing in front of them and he's he's using this particular psalm as a way to to confess and to speak over the king Yahweh's anointive power, Yahweh's call. And so he imagines the kings of the earth raving against the power of this king as if there's a great tension between Yahweh's kingship in the King David and the rest of the kings and they're ranting and they're raving against the king and they're saying they'll tear off the king's garments and throw off his chains and he says Yahweh in the heavens the Lord of the heavens laughs at them he's got it under control he terrifies them with his fury and he says I hereby anoint my king on Zion my holy mountain and just picture the crowds of people like yeah and the king is being anointed and being empowered. And the, and the prophet says, I will announce Yahweh's decision. He said to me, and he's saying to the prophet, he's saying to me, he said to me, probably the prophet there, you are my son, speaking as Yahweh, the son of Yahweh. Today I have become your father. And so, and, the, and then again, he says, just ask of me. So the prophet is speaking as God to the king. Just ask me and I will make the nations your possessions. And so he's, he's proclaiming power over to the king, the power over the enemies, power over giving the, the king this iron rod to crush his enemies. And then he speaks to the enemies again. He says, so kings, like the enemies of the king, wise up. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord reverently, trembling, kiss his feet. And there's no doubt that his there refers to the king's feet. It's not, you can't kiss Yahweh's feet. So trembling, kiss the king's feet. Come back and he'll accept you back. And then, uh, or he'll become angry and, and you'll be destroyed in his righteous anger. The last line is, but all who take refuge in the Lord are truly happy as taking refuge in the Lord and taking refuge in the king are kind of the same thing. So if you come back and you uh, reestablish a military alliance with the king and you cooperate with the king and you're siding with Yahweh, then again, you're you're on good standing and, and everything will go great. So what we have here are two introductory psalms. They're both, they're both anonymous. They both have kind of two key reference points. The first one, the key reference point is is um, is Torah. It's centered on, on study of Torah and on the pathway that leads to the tree of life. So we almost have three reference points in the first one. Uh, Torah, the study of Torah, which leads to a life of righteousness, which leads to a tree that's by the rivers of water. It brings to mind the tree of life. And the second psalm is an introduction to a whole different style of psalm. So these psalms are very different. One's kind of a wisdom psalm, and the other is a royal psalm. And it celebrates Yahweh's anointing of the king as the Messiah, as the the king's anointed leader. Remember, Messiah just means king or anointed one in in its final sense. And And so it's promising 
power to the king as the one through whom Yahweh will work to establish Yahweh's just rule in the world. And that's the role of the king. And so, so in that sense, the, the two key reference points are king and refuge. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. And so what we see here at the beginning of the book of Psalms are two introductory psalms that lay out the groundwork for the rest of the book. So we start with the theme of wisdom, and then we move to royalty, and then the next three major portions of the book of Psalms are dealing with the notion of Yahweh working through a royal king on earth. And then the last two sections move back to the concept of wisdom and Torah and tree of life as the central points by which we understand our relationship with God. And so so there is something of a tension between these two themes and these books, these two um, and the two Psalms opening up the book of Psalms are laying out the groundwork for the rest of the book as a whole. So it turns out that these royal psalms are extremely important to understand the message of the whole book of psalms. In, in fact, it's increasingly been shown and, and widely believed that the book of psalms is structured on a scaffolding that is uh, the scaffolding of the royal psalms. So the royal psalms go to the very core of the meaning of the book of psalms. And I'm going to uh, focus on Psalm 78 right now because I just find this a very interesting psalm. I'm going to read sections of it. It's quite long. Let's see how many uh, verses there are. There are uh, 72 verses, but I've only got about 15 or 20 of them to read, Uh, maybe 30, of Psalm 78. It's a mascal of Asaph. Listen, my people, to my teaching. Tilt your ears toward the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a proverb. I'll declare riddles from the days long gone. Ones that we've heard about and learned about, ones that our ancestors told us. We won't hide them from their descendants. We'll tell the next generation all about the praise due to Yahweh and his strength, the glorious works God has done. He established a law for Jacob. He set up instruction for Israel, ordering our ancestors to teach them to their children. This is so that the next generation and the children not yet born will know these things. And so they can raise up, rise up, and tell their children. So it has a real interest in communicating the law of God to the next generation. And then beginning in verse 9, we have a series of descriptions of failures of the people of ancient Israel. It goes one, it goes on and on in almost tedious monotony. Uh, beginning at verse nine, 19, they spoke against God. Can God set up a table in the wilderness? This is describing the failures in the wilderness period. It talks about the great wonders of the Exodus period. And then like that didn't even help because even after people saw the wonders of God, they still fell into unbelief. In verse 19, they spoke against God. Can God set a dinner table up in the wilderness, they asked? True, God struck the rock and waters gushed and streams flowed. But can he give bread to us too? Can he provide meat for his people? When the Lord heard this, he became furious. A fire was ignited against Jacob. Wrath also burned against Israel because they had no faith in God, because they didn't trust his saving power. No matter what happened, they still were in unbelief. And so here these people are in the desert after they had seen all the wonders of the Exodus. They're still going, can God set up a table in the wilderness? Now we saw him bring water out from a rock, but can he give us bread and meat? And they're still in extreme unbelief. And then let's jump down to verse 56. So you can read it on your own, but there's all kinds of just one after another after another description of their failures. And then in verse 56, but they tested and defied the Most High God. They didn't pay attention to his warnings. They turned away and became faithless just like their ancestors. They twisted away like a defective bow. They angered God with their many shrines. They angered him with their idols. God heard and became enraged. He rejected Israel utterly. God abandoned the sanctuary at Shiloh, the tent where he lived with humans. So they completely were rejecting God and God abandoned them. And it describes the destruction of the, uh, or the God's abandonment of the sanctuary at Shiloh, which led to the destruction of of that sanctuary by the Philistines. And then it goes on and on describing these, uh, these failures until you get to verse 67 and 
everything changes from there to the end. God rejected the tent of Joseph. He didn't choose the tribe of Ephraim. Instead, he chose the tribe of Judah, the mountain of Zion, which he loves. God built his sanctuary like the highest heaven and like the earth which he established forever. And God chose David, his servant, taking him from the sheepfolds. God brought him from shepherding, nursing ewes, to shepherd his people, Jacob, to shepherd his inheritance, Israel. David shepherded them with a heart of integrity. He led them with the skill of his hands. I absolutely love this last sentence. David shepherded them with a heart of integrity. He led them with the skill of his hands. It's a beautiful statement of David's wise leadership. But this passage sees David as the answer to Israel's problems. I mean, they couldn't do anything right until King David came. And it says not only did God choose David, he chose the tribe of Judah. He chose chose Zion, which Yahweh loves. It says God built his sanctuary like the high heaven. In other words, the sanctuary there in Jerusalem is like a little model of the very sanctuary of Yahweh in the highest heaven. So he built this and he established it on earth forever. But then at the pinnacle of God's solution, of God's dealing effectively with the problems that Israel has exhibited year after year and generation after generation, now we've come to a solution that will work. We've come to something that will really make things better. And it's this. It's that God chose King David and King and made King David the shepherd of his people so he could guide them with a heart of integrity and with the skill of his hands. So this is not only pro-monarchy, it's really more pro-King David. It's not just the monarchy in general, it's David in his integrity, David with the skill of his hands who is the solution to Israel's problems. But it's interesting to just compare that to what Samuel said back in 1 Samuel when the people came to him and asked for a king. He spoke about the coming of a king and the establishment of a king as deep idolatry, as a deep forsaking of Yahweh's lordship. Don't you already have a king in Yahweh? Yahweh is your king. Now, why if you establish a king, you're rejecting the king? And and Yahweh himself says to Samuel, they haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me. So we really see a shifting of opinions here between these two textual traditions. And above and beyond that, as we continue to read in the scriptures, we see that the kings really weren't that effective, that they really didn't lead people in the right path, especially when you go from King David to King Solomon. Solomon didn't seem to be this way. He didn't rule them with a heart of integrity and with the skill of his hands, even with the great wisdom that God gave. If you read the law of the king in Deuteronomy chapter 17, it's almost written with Solomon in view as the person who did exactly the wrong things, who multiplied wives, who multiplied horses, who multiplied wealth, who didn't study the law, who didn't keep the law with integrity, but was marrying uh, idolatrous wisdom and setting up foreign gods right there in Jerusalem to be worshiped. So Psalm 78 is deeply aspirational, isn't it? It's not saying that David actually did this, and David did do it in part. David was a man after God's own heart, but he made a lot of mistakes and did a lot of really, really dumb stuff. But he did, the aspiration of the people was that he would lead them with the heart of integrity and with the skill of his hands. And that was kind of this hopeful perspective that this psalm is uh, is laying out there for us. And so you can see why Christians came along and reading psalms like this say, you know, King David never really lived up to that. And those aspirations are cast forward into the future as messianic hopes. It's like saying, we never really got that king that we were hoping for. We hoped that David would be it. And he came the closest maybe. And then there was Hezekiah and Josiah and a few other really good ones. But but we never really got that king that, that led the people into the full messianic blessing. And so that hope and desire was cast forward into the future. And of course, Christians come and they say, and we say, yes, Jesus is the full aspiration. Jesus is the one that lived up to these aspirations fully. And so we claim Christ as Jesus, as our Christ, as our full King, as our full Messiah. But this particular psalm in its context, is hoping for those things from King David. It's a very hopeful psalm. It's a very royal psalm, but it's also very different in perspective from what Samuel said 
back when people asked King, uh, Samuel for a king. And it's also very different from what actually transpired, that kings, for the most part, were failures in living up to these aspirations of messianic blessing. Some people may not realize that the book of Psalms is actually divided up into five collections. So there are five collections of the book of Psalms that, uh, that scholars are increasingly interested in because it looks like this five collection structure might be making the book of Psalms come off as something on the level of the books of Moses. Like we know that there are five books of Moses and so it could well be that the book of Psalms has been broken up into five units so that we think of them as like on the Torah level, as something that should be meditated on and studied, not just sung. So originally, of course, these were meant to be sung. This is like a hymnal. And so there were the songs that they would sing when they go to the temple to sacrifice. But then, uh, then apparently there's a shift that occurs in the way people are thinking about the Psalms because, the, as I said, they're structured on this five-psalm basis or on the basis of five books of Psalms. And, they're, um, and that seems to be indicating that, they're, that the, the persons who are dividing them up that way are doing it because they want you to think of the book of Psalms as like on the level of the books of, books of Moses. It's almost like they're shifting from hymnal to Bible, right? The hymnal is separate from the Bible. When you go to church, the hymnal is not the Bible. They're right next to each other, but they're not the same thing. And something similar would have occurred in the temple of old. There, you have the scrolls that you sing from that kind of organize your worship experience in the temple, the psalms that you sing as a part of your uh, offering sacrifices to God. And then you have the books of Moses, which may be stored in the temple, but you don't sing those. You sing the hymnal, uh, the scrolls of psalms, but you don't sing the book of uh, the books of the law. And so by dividing these up after the temple is destroyed, it's probably the case that they divided these up into groups of five so that they because they're preparing to insert them from the hymnal or from outside of the Bible into the Bible. And they want you to think of them as something like Torah. And so the very first of them helps with this transition transition when it says, I, I will meditate on the word of God day and night. So let me actually read it. This is Psalm 1 verse 2. Instead of doing the these things, these persons love the Yahweh's instruction and they recite God's instruction day and night. And so right at the very beginning of the book of Psalms, it proclaims a blessing. You're like a person that's uh, got their life planted by a tree of living water that brings forth its fruit in its season. Its leaf doesn't wither. All of these blessings that are promised to people who are studying Torah and, and reciting Torah and whose lives are Torah-centered. So right at the beginning of the uh, book of Psalms, they've placed this book, which is an introduction, and the psalm is intended to help people make that shift from hymnal to Bible, from uh, from psalm to Torah. So now these psalms are divided up into, into five uh, books, and they're inserted in the Bible so that we, in, in, in a way that's saying, don't just sing these, but study them as if they're the very laws of God. Originally, the book of Psalms had very much a royal for framework. And, and so let's just take a look uh, for real quickly at the way they're divided up. So the book of Psalms is divided up into five sections or books, as I mentioned before, and these become absolutely central in understanding the overarching message of the book of Psalms. And so those books are 1 through 41, 42 through 72, 72 through 89, sorry, 73 through 89, 90 through 106 and 107 through 150. And you can just Google, you know, how the five books of Psalms and anybody can find those. So it turns out that this uh, five book collection as I said, is absolutely critical in understanding the message of the book of Psalms or the way its understanding of kingship shifts over time. It, it's like a way of documenting how the attitudes toward kingship are changing in ancient Israel. And so that's why they become very interesting to us, especially as we're thinking about kingship and the way uh, there are various uh, attitudes and understandings of kingship in ancient Israel. So some of the key psalms that are found right at the junctures or these critical junctures in the book of Psalms. So remember, it's divided into five books. 
and the first three of them are understood as being directly con uh, uh, connected to King David. In other words, the first three books of Psalms seem to have a special emphasis on supporting the whole notion of a Davidic kingship. And so they're all very positive, and you have all these positive Psalms. The first one is Psalm 2. Another juncture is Psalm 72. And then Psalm 89 at the third juncture are all very uh, positive about the kingship of David or the, the uh the royal kingship in Jerusalem, the Davidic line. And we've already looked at Psalm 2 and then another psalm, this isn't at a scene, but Psalm 78 as another psalm that's just so positive. Remember, that's the one that ends that with uh, with the King David finally came along after all the, the problems and the ancient Israel was so messed up. And finally, King David came along and God led them with these, he led the people of Israel with these skilled hands and with a heart of integrity or something like that. It ends with a very positive statement about King David and it's related to the whole kingship of the of the Davidic kings that follow. And so that's uh, Psalm 78, 67 through 72. But the point here is that the first three sections of the book of Psalms are very centered on these royal psalms, which are very upbeat and very positive and very enthusiastic about God working through King David in order to establish God's rule of blessing. And these kings are God's anointed ones through whom God works to bring God's a special rule and covenant and blessing to Israel. So instead of what Samuel thought where, you know, they haven't rejected you, but they've rejected me, where God says that to Samuel, actually. And so Yahweh in that case feels rejected by the people of Israel choosing kings. In this case, uh, because the book of Psalms is very much related to the temple, we have a lot more of the ideology and this pro-kingship perspective we would expect of those who are uh, are working in the temple that uh, is under the control of the palace right next door. The key psalm for our purposes is Psalm 89, which is at the very end of the third book of Psalms. Psalm 89 is a really interesting and powerful psalm because it indicates more than any other psalm in the Bible that this idea of a Davidic covenant through whom Yahweh works to bring restoration and blessing to the earth, that that has fallen into complete collapse. The psalm up until the end doesn't sound like it's about a complete collapse of this whole ideology of King David. It, uh, it's very uh, upbeat and it says all kinds of upbeat things about the history of Israel and Yahweh's role with them. And it even has one of the stronger statements of God's unconditional commitment to the kingship of David. It says in, so, so this is Psalm 89 verse 79. It says, I will establish his dynasty for all time. His throne will, will last as long as the heavens do. But if his children ever abandon my instruction, stop following my rules, if they treat my statutes like dirt, stop keeping my commandments, then I will punish their sin with a stick and I will punish their wrongdoing with severe beating. But even then, I won't withdraw my loyal love from him. I won't betray my faithfulness. I won't break my covenant. I won't renege on what crossed my lips. So the point here is that, uh, that God is promising that even if the, the, the descendants of King David do break the covenant, and even if they do sin, God will give them a solid beating, but they're still his children. They're still God's children, and, and God isn't going to reject them. So it's a statement of God's unconditional covenanted love. And we talked about that early. Remember, we compared uh, one of the Psalms dealing with this, this unconditional love of God for King David and for Jerusalem for Zion and for the temple, all of that thing. There are other psalms that say that kind of thing. And then you have the book of uh, the prophets who very much understand this covenant that God has with King David is highly conditional. This one here seems to be unconditional. I hear, I hear, by here I mean in Psalm 89, the verses that I just read. So this begins with a real upbeat notion of God's, uh, God's relationship with Israel. And then it really takes a hard turn downhill in verse 38. But you, God, have rejected and despised him. You've become infuriated with your anointed one, with your Messiah. 
You've canceled the covenant with your servant. You've thrown his crown in the dirt. You've broken through it all his walls. You've made him his strongholds a pile of ruins. All those who pass by plunder him. He's nothing but a joke to his neighbors. You've lifted high his foe's strong hand. You made all his enemies reason to celebrate. Yes, you dulled the edge of his sword and didn't support him in battle. You've put an end to all his splendor. You've thrown his throne thrown his throne to the ground. You've shortened the prime of his life. You've wrapped him up in shame. How long will it last, Yahweh? Will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my life is. Have you treated created humans for no good reason? Who lives in their life without seeing death? Who is ever rescued from the grip of the grave? Where now are your loving, loving acts from long ago? my Yahweh, the same ones, or sorry, my, my Lord, my Adonai, the same ones you promised to David by your own faithfulness. Remember your servant's abuse, my Adonai, my Lord. Remember how I bear in my heart all the insults of the nations, the ones your, your, uh, the ones your enemies, Yahweh, use, the ones they use to abuse every step your anointed one takes. And then that's the end of book three. It couldn't be a more powerful expression of disappointment. I mean, for crying out loud, right before this, you have the strongest statement of God's eternal, uncompromising, unconditional love for the kingship of David and for this dynastic house. And now he's saying, but you have broken that covenant. You've turned your back on them. And at no place does he admit any guilt. Uh, does he say, you know, but we did sin and we understand why there's none of that. It's as if, uh, just like that previous Psalm, Psalm 78, where there's this extraordinary anger at God. I'm sorry, Psalm 44, uh, which we haven't talked about, but it's very similar. There's this extraordinary anger at God where it's like, God, we kept your law, but you've turned your back on us. Here it's something similar. The whole idea of the kingship of David, of God's covenanted blessing, has come to a crashing end. This psalm is probably written after 587 when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple, took the uh, king Zedekiah into exile, killed all of his sons, put out his eyes with a red-hot poker. It was the worst, most impossible end to come of the kingship of David that started with such hopefulness. It ended with such discouragement and with anger. And here at the end of book three, we have a turning away, a recognition that this covenant that we understood as being unconditional that we had with Yahweh, it just didn't work. And that's not the end of the story. A number of years ago, I was taking a Bible course, and we were sitting around reading the book of Psalms. We did a whole section on the book of Psalms, and I was talking about this class and how much I was enjoying it with another scholar. And the scholar said, "Have you? are you just reading Psalms? And I went, yeah, we're just kind of reading them and discussing them. And he said, haven't you been talking about, you know, how the book of Psalms is structured and the royal covenantal framework and the way there are ideological shifts in the book of Psalms? And I went... No, we haven't really discussed that. He said, well, that's not much of a class on Psalms. That's absolutely central to understanding the book. And so that illustrates just how this idea that the book of Psalms has these ideological shifts within it and that it's kind of a constructed unity, that these are central ideas in the way scholars think. Gerald Wilson is the scholar that's really first the proponent of this concept, and, and he published it in articles and wrote some books on the topic, and eventually it made its way into commentaries, and now it's in 
study Bibles. Even so, so that shows the, 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 the concept has really won the day. And scholars have looked at this and gone, yep, that's really a, a key aspect in understanding something. If it gets into the study Bibles, then, then it's uh, pretty important and needs to be seen as kind of a central idea in understanding the book. So again, the book of Psalms, the first three books of the books, remember the book of Psalms is, it has, uh, has five, is divided up into five books, which is supposed to make us think Torah, think of the law of Moses. It starts out with an affirmation of Torah, which we will come back to, uh, the, that we should think of all the Psalms as on the Torah basis. But that's a later construction. The earlier construction seems to be this uh, royal covenantal framework. In other words, the first three books of Psalms have a real commitment to the Yahweh's kingship in Jerusalem through the family of King David. We already read that one Psalm, Psalm 78, that uh, celebrates King David's rulership. Actually, it's not 78, it's 72. Nope, I was right. It is 78. It ends with the words, David shepherded them with a heart of integrity and led them with the skill of his hands. Remember, that's the psalm that we looked at earlier that uh, documents all the problems. I mean, Israel is nothing but a hot bag of mess up until the entrance of King David. And King David comes with this integrity of heart, a heart of integrity, the skill of his hands. And he he's the one to whom this aspirational hope that the kings will really establish justice. They'll establish God's rule. They'll be faithful in helping people to be covenant faithful. And there's just this high expectation of what God's going to do through the king. So if you want a psalm to represent the, the theme, the primary theme, the ideological commitment of the first three books of psalms that would get us up to Psalm 89, the, that would be the, the theme of Psalm 78 would be a good psalm to kind of get at the very core of what these psalms are committed to. They're committed to the kingship of David. They're committed to uh, worship of Yahweh in the temple. They're committed to this belief that Yahweh has promised a permanent home for the Spirit of God, for the presence of God among the people, that the temple is central to the worship of Yahweh. That's where you go to offer sacrifice. That's where you go to when there's a time of, of crisis and you need to, pay, to go and, and, and get in touch with Yahweh in prayer. The temple is absolutely central to the worship of Yahweh. And right next to the temple, of course, is the palace, and that's where King David lives and all of the uh, descendants of King David. David would have lived in that palace, and the palace is almost like an extension of the temple. They're like part of the same complex almost. And so this system of Zion, God's holy mountain, Mount Moriah, uh, Jerusalem and its temple and its palace with all the accoutrements where you go to, to offer your worship to God, and the king is there and he leads the ceremony and he is the almost like the high priest and he... He's the one who leads us with the skill of his hands and with the integrity of his heart. And these kings are God's representatives on earth through whom God speaks to us and leads us and protects us and keeps us covenantally centered. That's the understanding of the first three books of Psalms. And yet when you get to the last one, Psalm 89, everything comes crashing down. We looked at that last in the last unit. So book three of Psalms ends in dismay and distress discouragement and despair. The Davidic covenant, the Davidic system, the temple system just doesn't seem to be working because they understood that temple to be an inviolable location where God's presence is protective of the city, and yet the Babylonians came in and destroyed it and completely uh, burned it to the ground. They understood the kingship of David to be a permanent solution, a permanent institution that God would punish them only in the sense of disciplining them, but he wouldn't cast them off forever. And yet the kingship of David seems to have come to a very ignoble end with Zedekiah having his eyes burned out. The last thing he saw was the death of his of his many sons. I think there were 10 of them. So that's the last thing Zedekiah saw before he was brought as a slave into Babylonian captivity. The kingship of David seems to have come to a complete end, a complete crisis. And in book four, we encounter something of an ideological shift, something of a change in perspective. In fact, it's very interesting that uh, chapter four is the only psalm that begins with a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Well, isn't that interesting? 
in saying this is a prayer of Moses, this is kind of a reminder of the period of time before there were kings. And so that's a hint that maybe they're reaching back to that pre-kingly understanding that Yahweh is directly our king and that God, Yahweh doesn't need an earthly king. We have a little bit of a harbinger that that may be the direction this is all headed. Moses led them before they had a temple. Moses led them before they had a monarchy. And Moses is making a comeback now to lead them again now that the monarchy is gone and their hopes in the monarchy and their hopes in the temple have been crushed. The traditional royal psalms that were so important to the first three books of psalms in books four and five are de-emphasized. And in this collection, this would be Psalms uh, 90 through the end, 150. In this collection, we find different themes. Yahweh's kingship is hailed almost like the idea that Yahweh is our king that we saw previously uh, in Gideon and Samuel. So that notion of Yahweh's unique kingship directly kingship is emphasized in a new way here. That idea kind of makes a resurfacing and comes back. Like Psalm 93 says, Yahweh rules. He is robed in majesty. Yahweh is robed, clothed with strength. Yet, yes, he has set the world firmly in place. It won't be shaken. Your throne, and this would be spoken to Yahweh, your throne is set firm for a very long time. You are eternal. It's almost like saying we realize that the kingship we had been so excited about before is not eternal, but Yahweh is eternal. And that theme kind of comes back, comes roaring out of their past again. They affirm that from of old, Yahweh is the king, was the king of ancient Israel, and that Yahweh's kingship provides a new basis for the community to move forward without a monarchy, without a kingdom, a traditional earthly kingdom, without the traditional temple. And so another theme that we have emphasized here is the centrality of the role of Torah. We have a resurfacing of Torah piety rather than temple piety. And the clearest example of this is the fact that Psalm 119 is by far the longest uh, psalm in the book of Psalms, and it has a dominating presence here in books four and five. Psalm 119 is an acrostic psalm. It takes the, uh, the Hebrew alphabet, and uh, for each letter of the alphabet provides a little poem, and all the poems focus on a, a celebration or a giving of thanks to Yahweh for the gift of Torah. I'll just read the first verse, which is uh, almost a summary of the whole thing. Those whose way is blameless, who walk in Yahweh's instruction, are truly happy. And this psalm goes on 176 verses celebrating the gift of God in Torah, this book of instruction that God has given. And so Psalm 119, as I said, an acrostic psalm, is a massive dominating psalm that uh, speaks to the very core of the message of books four and five of the book of Psalms as uh, the gift of God in Torah. So both of these themes are to get work together. Uh, remember, Torah goes back to Moses and is associated with Moses, and the whole uh, book four and five begin with the Psalm of Moses. And so the theme here is Yahweh is on the throne and Yahweh has given us the Torah. We don't have temple now, but we have Torah and we worship God by, we worship Yahweh by celebrating and by keeping the Torah, by the study of the Torah. The study of the Torah has now become our new temple. So in books four and five of Psalms, God's role as the king takes preeminence and predominance over any earthly representatives like King David, which is clearly response to the end of the Davidic kingship. Another interesting thing about book five of Psalms is the predominance of the word hallelujah, or let us praise the Lord, or let us praise Yahweh. Yah is short for Yahweh. So as we read in the book of Psalms, we find in book five uh, that word being used quite a bit at the beginning of Psalms, at the end of Psalms. In fact, there's a section, Psalm 113 through 118, that's, cons- that's called the Egyptian Hallel, because a lot of the Psalms are connected to, um, to the exodus of the children of Israel from Egypt. In fact, 
during the Passover ceremonies, they will read this book of Psalms as a part of the celebration of Passover. So they'll read Psalms 118, 13 through 118 as the way that they celebrate the Passover. So these Psalms, the, the Hallel Psalms or the Hallelujah Psalms that use Hallelujah, almost are like saying, you know, we need to focus on the worship of Yahweh. We got a little distracted with kings in the past. Let's focus our worship on Yahweh and on Yahweh's Torah. In fact, it's, it's Good to, and it's important to point out that there are psalms in the fifth book of Psalms that are psalms of David. Psalms 108 through 110 are psalms of David that right at the beginning it mentions the, the, a psalm of David. And 138 through 145 are also uh, monarchy psalms, psalms of David. But it's almost like saying with the, with the Torah, it's placed right at the middle of Psalm 119. It's almost like saying we weren't Torah-oriented as much as we should have been in the past. And if God ever brings us a king again, things are going to have to be a lot more Torah-centered, which means a conditional covenant. We need to be much more Torah-centered than we were in the past. But God wants us to uh, focus on, on Yahweh as our king and on the Torah as that which is central. And as we get, as we read in the book of Psalms toward the end, it becomes more and more intense in the terms of the praise of the Lord. So the last few Psalms are called doxologies because it's just a statement of praise. Praise the Lord. Praise him in the temple. Praise him with a harp. Praise him with a stringed instrument. Praise him with a trombone. Praise him with a clarinet. You know, it goes on and on. Intense statements of praise uh, with this new uh, excitement enthusiasm for the worship of Yahweh and for the Torah. Let me read in uh, Gerald Wilson's own words uh, how this, uh, his understanding of the book of Psalms works especially as we're looking at the last uh, few books of Psalms 4 and 5. As such, this grouping, Psalm, Book 5 of Psalms, this grouping stands as the answer to the problem posed in Psalm 89 as to the apparent a failure of the Davidic covenant with which books 1 and 3 are primarily concerned. Briefly summarized, the answer given is this. In other words, the answer given in book five for the problem of uh, the Davidic covenant in books one through three. In other words, book the Davidic covenant promises that David will be an eternal kingdom, an eternal monarchy, and the, the temple will be God's inviolable temple, and yet it's they're both gone now. So the, the answer given in book five is this. One, Yahweh is king. Two, he has been our refuge in the past, long before the monarchy existed in, in, in the time of Moses. So we have a moving back to focus on Moses. Three, he will continue to be our refuge now that the monarchy is gone. And four, blessed are they who trust in him and keep the Torah. So both Yahweh as king and the Torah-centered piety are central aspects to the uh, kind of religious perspective that we have on display in book five of the Psalms. And that reminds us that the book of Psalms starts with Psalm 1, which we said is a celebration of the uh, Torah of God. And so it's placed at the very beginning to give that Torah-centered theme to the very, to the very end of the book. So the book uh, starts with the Torah, and in a sense it ends with Torah. Yahweh is king and God's Torah as the center of Yahweh's, of the way we worship Yahweh in this new age when we don't have a Davidic king or a temple. Let me read a few words from the side note in the Common English Study Bible, which is, and, and it's on um, where Psalm 108, if you just open up to Psalm 108, if you want to read along, you can. But it's talking about the pattern uh, that we, some of the patterns that we see in the fifth book of Psalms. This pattern draws attention to the central element, the massive Psalm 119. It seems that the editors of the Psalter wanted to suggest that uh, monarchy or David, uh, the monarchy of David, Exodus and Zion now revolve around God's instruction. And there's a little uh, parenthesis there, which I'll skip. To a recently defeated and increasingly conquered and scattered people, the focus on God's instruction would be good news. God's gift of instruction, remember that's Torah, is the new form of deliverance beyond the Exodus. God's instruction points the way to living God's will, the former role of the monarchy. 
and obedience to God's instruction affords a direct experience of God, just as visiting Zion, the temple, would give an experience of God. So it explains how the shift occurs away from uh, a monarchy cult-centered, or when I say cult, I just mean uh, kind of a formalized, ritualized worship of God centered on the monarchy and the temple, away from that to Yahweh being the king and the Torah being the temple. So I've been saying all along that there seems to be a controversy and compromise in the works in ancient Israel as it relates to having a king. So let's spell that out and make it absolutely clear. On one side, we have the, uh, the, the people who believe that Yahweh is our king and that crowning a king is like a rejection of Yahweh's kingship. This is exactly what, what Gideon says and what Sam, Samuel says when people come to him and ask for a king. So they say that Yahweh is our king. And and if we, re, if we take a human king, it's a rejection of the king we have, and it's essentially an evil on the level of idolatry. It's a, it's a rejection of the, our loyalty and fealty to the king that we presently have in Yahweh. And on the other side, there are those that are arguing that the judges system just isn't working. We have these uh, judges that are being called up for specific periods of crisis, and they just don't work very well. We don't have a system in place that, that deals with crisis uh, over the long haul, we just are dealing with it in a piecemeal faction, fashion. So the judges system doesn't seem to be working on no, numerous levels, spiritually or politically or militarily, and that's what uh, the book of Judges is claiming. Over time, it starts out okay, but over time it just devolves, and pretty soon you're left with people like Samson and Jephthah. And so it's, the judges system just doesn't work very well. And the, the fact is we have a major pol- uh, military threat in the Philistines and Ammonites and others, but mainly the Philistines, are a major threat to our existence as a nation. They're going to wipe us off the planet if we don't watch out. And thirdly, the the system that we've developed in our for our worship of God just isn't working very well. We have Eli and Samuel both being good people, but they're very old, and their children aren't what they are. They're corrupt. They're, they're not carrying out their duties with any kind of faithfulness and integrity, and the system just isn't working. So that's our controversy. On one side, you have the people that really want to have a king and that feel like they feel like the system that they have right now is not working and has to be radically changed from the bottom up. And the other people that are saying, no, the system that we have is what God gave us and that we need to be content with it. We might want a king because it makes us look, you know, impressive for other people, like other people around us are like, well, where's your king? Don't you have any real leadership? Where's your royal throne? Where's the stuff that, you know, everybody gets all, you know, impressed by? And they, they don't have that. They have this simple system of judges that to step in and fill in the leadership needs when there's a crisis. But other than that, they don't have a king. They just have local regions with their clans that uh, come together to worship at Shiloh. And so that's the system they have, and it's kind of a simple system. It's a system that is very egalitarian, for sure, but um, but it's what they had coming uh, as as they go through the period of the judges. And some of them are just are saying, this is, system doesn't work. The judges, the period isn't working for us politically and militarily. We have these uh, Philistines on our doorstep and our cult is corrupt. And so uh, so there's a compromise that comes into being. So here's we, there's the controversy. Now let's talk about compromise for a minute. The What we have that develops in Israel is what seems to be a limited kingship. Now it's interesting, the Bible never really spells this out, uh, except for the Deuteronomy passage that we looked at previously. But there, the Bible doesn't uh, spell it out in the sense that it doesn't say, hey, you know, these kings around us, the kings of the Ammonites and the kings of the of the, of the king of Tyre and the regional emperors, they're, uh, they have absolute power. But we don't allow for that in Israel. There's nowhere that really spells this out, but it is a fact that the kingship as it develops in Israel is remarkably limited as you compare it to the local kingships in the ancient Near East. Those kingships would have been absolute in their power, absolute in their authority, and the king would be the, the god on earth. The king would actually be the divine 
incarnation of the God on earth. Whereas kings in ancient Israel were understood in more of a human fashion, and they were understood as Yahweh's representative, but they weren't Yahweh on earth. They were limited in their power. Kings were designated and overseen by prophets and laws. So kingship in Israel as it develops is, is remarkably limited. And it's interesting to me that you can really see something of a comparison to American history where we have the period of time of the Articles of Confederation at the very earliest period of time or a collection of 13 original colonies instead of 12 as it was in ancient Israel, but still remarkably similar. And, uh, and it, there was no centralized government at that period of time. We don't didn't have a president. We didn't have a constitution. We didn't have a standing army. We didn't have any national tax. And so there were these things that 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 worked great in some ways. And it's really what the, the people that were the all the Revolutionary War generals wanted. They did not want a strong nationalized government. They thought that that would just be one step toward having a king like the English had. And, you know, we fought a war to get rid of the British king. Why should we set one up of our own? And it really wouldn't have been that we wouldn't have a constitution. We wouldn't have a stronger centralized government in the United States if it wasn't for George Washington. He was a big proponent of stronger centralized government, as was his right-hand man, Alexander Hamilton, is, is now famous for from the musical, which is awesome, by the way. But uh, but the, the American system went through a very similar period of compromise of controversy, and um, and the, the, we almost fought a, another civil war over the Constitution itself because there were many many people that were vert, that were just against it lock stock and barrel and would never have accepted it if it wasn't for finally the inclusion of the Bill of Rights, which at the bottom of it, you know, it, it spells out the protections that the federal government ensures for, for the little guy. And so the once the Bill of Rights was there added to the Constitution, then it became a lot more palatable for people. Uh, but people like Alexander Hamilton were furious about it. They did not want a Bill of Rights. They thought that would it would limit the powers of government too much. And yet uh, it was only with that Bill of Rights added that uh, that people who are the anti-federalists would were willing to come on board and vote for it. But we almost fought a, a civil war over this issue. So it's very similar kind of historical backdrop. I've always been fascinated by that. The similarities of the conversation that occurred in American history, the debate that occurred over our Constitution. And there's another aspect that's very interesting about this comparison between the debate that occurred in the United States over our Constitution and the debate that occurred in ancient Israel about, about having a king. That when you look at a lot of the debates that the anti-federalists were presenting, they were presenting those arguments when the Bill of Rights had not yet been added to the document. In other words, they're arguing only against the the body of the text of the Constitution. They're not arguing against the whole thing because the and and once the body of the Constitution was or once the Bill of Rights was added, the conversation changed substantially. And the same thing is true in ancient Israel. A lot of these arguments that that Samuel is making and that others are making the anti-kingship arguments are arguments made more than likely against the ancient near the more typical ancient near eastern versions of kingship where kingship was absolute in power and there was no limitation there was no strictness there was no um, uh, there was no prophetic oversight of the king so uh, the the arguments that are made in the bible might seem to be more uh, flat out contradictory than they actually are in other words the kingship that does develop is a limited kingship as we see with the whole story of Ahab and Naboth's vineyard. It's a limited kingship, and of course we see this in the case of, uh, of David and Bathsheba. And so, and that, that also is interesting. Just those stories show just how human these kings were understood to be. They were not understood as being gods walking the earth. They were understood as being humans who represented Yahweh in some unique and, and, and uh, striking ways, and, more, uh, and their responsibilities to represent Yahweh were perhaps exceeding a normal human, a normal Israelite, but uh, but they were still fully human. The texts make that so clear. And so, um, so that, again, the point here is that some of these arguments against kingship, when we spell them out and lay them out side by side, the pros and cons, it almost looks like they're flat out directly contradicting each other. And they are in that instance. But once the 
In other words, they are so long as you're thinking about the king that that's being established is just like all the other kings, absolute in their power and authority. But once there comes this new way of understanding a king with limited power and with limited authority and with, oh, under the oversight of a prophet and laws, then uh, then the I, then the argument changes substantially, and it's not so. The early anti kingship arguments may not directly be opposed to the kind of king kingship that does indeed develop and that ends up feeding this whole messianic thrust that the Bible begins to move into. Well, thanks for listening. This has been a fun project for me so far. This is the second episode, and we've got one more on on kingship in the Psalms and the way the book of Psalms has uh, kind of a a narrative arc, in fact, that I remember the first time that I learned about this, it was just, it just blew my mind. I always thought of the Psalms as just a collection of Psalms that are kind of thrown in together with no real arc or no real uh, connected storyline. But there is something of a storyline in the book of Psalms, and we'll be tracing some of that out because it deals directly with uh, the understanding of kingship in ancient Israel. And then the last episode, as you might guess, we'll be dealing with prophecies about Jesus as it relates to kingship. And so that will especially tie this up as a true Advent study. I want to remind you, as always, to rate and review on Facebook, not on Facebook, but to rate and review in the Apple Podcasts or wherever you receive this podcast. Remember, we have a Facebook page, which you should be able to find fairly easily by just looking for Biblical Conversations. It should pull you right there, or you can look for me, Joel Allen. I'm sure you can find me with a simple Facebook search. Remember, too, that I'm always interested in hearing back from you. If you have a question or a concern that you'd like to shoot my way, you can send me an email. You can also use Anchor. If you want to listen to this out of the Anchor app, you can actually send a voice message that I could pull into an episode and, and use your voice as a, uh, as a way of, of extending the conversation. Remember to subscribe so you can get this feed on a regular basis in your RSS feed. And the honor of all honors really is to post this uh, this podcast to your social media and maybe encourage other people to use it as a part of their Advent uh, preparation, their preparation for the coming of Christ. So as always, the word of God is for and with the people of God. So say together with me, thanks be to God.